too. Air mysteries with harmless serpents in their hands looks quite unintelligible. When a wild tribe of red Indians does the same thing, as a trial of courage, with real rattlesnakes, we understand the red man's motives, and may conjecture that similar motives once existed among the ancestors of the Greeks. Our method, then, is to compare the seemingly meaningless customs or manners of civilized races with the similar customs and manners which exist among the uncivilized and still retain their meaning. It is not necessary for comparison of this sort that the uncivilized and the civilized race should be of the same stock, nor need we prove that they were ever in contact with each other. Similar conditions of mind produce similar practices, apart from identity of race, or borrowing of ideas and manners. Let us return to the example of the flint arrowheads. Everywhere Neolithic arrowheads are pretty much alike. The cause of the resemblance is no more than this, that men, with the same needs, the same materials, and the same rude instruments, everywhere produced the same kind of arrowhead. No hypothesis of interchange of ideas nor of community of race is needed to explain the resemblance of form in the missiles. Very early pottery in any region island for the same causes, like very early pottery in any other region, the same sort of similarity was explained by the same resemblances in human nature. When we touched on the identity of magical practices and of superstitious beliefs, This method is fairly well established and orthodox when we deal with usages and superstitious beliefs, but nay we apply the same method when we deal with myths. Here a difficulty occurs. Mythologists, as a rule, are averse to the method of folklore. They think it scientific to compare only the myths of races which speak languages of the same family, and of races which have, in historic times, been actually improved contact with each other. Thus, most mythologists hold it correct to compare Greek. Slavonic, Celtic, and Indian stories, because Greeks, Slavs, Celts, and Hindus all speak languages of the same family. Again, they hold it correct to compare Chaldean and Greek myths, because the Greeks and the Chaldeans were brought into contact through the Phoenicians, and by other intermediaries, such as the Hittites. But the same mythologists will vow that it is unscientific to compare a Maori or a Hottentot or an Eskimo myth with an Aryan story because Maoris and Eskimo and Hottentots do not speak languages akin to that of Greece, nor can we show that the ancestors of Greeks, Maoris, Hottentots, and Eskimo were ever in contact with each other in historical times. Now the peculiarity of the method of folklore is that it will venture to compare with due caution and due examination of evidence the myths of the most widely severed races, holding that myth is a product of the early human fancy. Working on the most rudimentary knowledge of the outer world, the student of folklore thinks that differences of race do not much affect the early mythopoeic faculty. He will not be surprised if Greeks and Australian blacks are in the same tale. In each case, he holds, all the circumstances of the case must be examined and considered. For instance, when the Australians tell a myth about the Pleiades very like the Greek myth of the Pleiades, we must ask a number of questions. Is the Australian version authentic? Can the people who told it have heard it from a European? If these questions are answered so as to make it apparent that the Australian Pleiad myth is of genuine native origin, we need not fly to the conclusion that the Australians are a lost and forlorn branch of the Aryan race. Two other hypotheses present themselves. First, the human species is of a known antiquity. In the moderate allowance of 250.000 years, there is time for stories to have wandered all round the world, as the Agari beads of Ashanid have probably crossed the continent from Egypt, 
as the Asiatic Jadif Asiatic Ipi has arrived in Swiss lake dwellings, as an African trade cowry is said to have been found in a Cornish barrel, as an Indian ocean shell has been discovered in a prehistoric bone cave in Poland. This slow filtration of tales is not absolutely out of the question. Two causes would especially help to transmit myths. The first is slavery and slave stealing. The second is the habit of capturing brides from alien stocks, and the law which forbids marriage with a woman of a man's own family. Slaves and captured brides would bring their native legends among alien peoples. But there is another possible way of explaining the resemblance granting that it is proved of the Greek and Australian Pleiad myth. The object of both myths is to account for the grouping and other phenomena of the constellations. May not similar explanatory stories have occurred to the ancestors of the Australians, and to the ancestors of the Greeks, however remote their home, while they were still in the savage condition. The best way to investigate this point is to collect all known savage and civilized stellar myths, and see what points they have in common, if they all agree in character, though the Greek tales are full of grace while those of the Australians or Brazilians are rude enough, we may plausibly account for the similarity of myths, as we accounted for the similarity of flint arrowheads. The myths, like the arrowheads, resemble each other because they were originally framed to meet the same needs out of the same material. In the case of the arrowheads, the need was for something hard, heavy, and sharp. The material was flint. In the case of the myths, the need was to explain certain phenomena the material so to speak was an early state of the human mind, to which all objects seemed equally endowed with human personality, and to which no metamorphosis appeared impossible. In the following essays, then, the myths and customs of various peoples will be compared, even when these peoples talk languages of alien families, and have never as far as history shows us been in actual contact. Our method throughout will be to place the usage, or myth which is unintelligible when found among a civilized race, beside the similar myth which is intelligible enough when it is found among savages. A mean term will be found in the folklore preserved by the non-progressive classes in a progressive people. This folklore represents, in the midst of a civilized race, the savage ideas out of which civilization has been evolved. The conclusion will usually be that the fact which puzzles us by its presence in civilization is a relic surviving from the time when the ancestors of a civilized race were in the state of savagery. By this method it is not necessary that some sort of genealogy should be established between the Australian and the Greek narrators of a similar myth, nor between the Greek and Australian possessors of a similar usage. The hypothesis will be that the myth, or usage, is common to both races not because of original community of stock, not because of contact and borrowing, but because the ancestors of the Greeks passed through the savage intellectual condition in which we find the Australians. The questions may be asked, has race nothing, then, to do with myth? Do peoples never consciously borrow myths from each other? The answer I'll and that race has a great deal to do with the development of myth. If it be race which confers on a people its national genius, and its capacity of becoming civilized. If race does this, then race affects, in the most powerful manner, the ultimate development of myth. No one is likely to confound a Homeric myth with a myth from the Edda, nor either with a myth from a Brahmana, though in all three cases the substance, the original set of ideas, may be much the same. In all three you have anthropomorphic gods, capable of assuming animal shapes, tricky, capricious, limited in many undivine ways yet endowed with magical powers, so far the mythical gods of Homer, of the Edda, of any of the Brahmanas, 
are on a level with each other, and not much above the gods of savage mythology. This stuff of myth is quad semper, quad abique, quad abiomnibus, and is the original gift of the savage intellect. But the final treatment, the ultimate literary form of the myth, varies in each race. Homeric gods, like Red Indian, Flinket, or Australian gods, can assume the shapes of birds. But when we read, in Homer, of the arming of a theme, the hunting of Artemis, the vision of golden Aphrodite, the apparition of Hermes, like a young man when the flower of youth is loveliest, then we recognize the effect of race upon myth, the effect of the Greek genius at work on rude material. Between the Olympians and a Thlinkic god there is all the difference that exists between the Demeter of Cnidos and an image from Easter Island. Again, the Scandinavian gods, when their tricks are laid aside, when Odin is neither assuming the shape of word nor of raven, have a martial dignity, a noble enduring spirit of their own, race comes out in that, as it does in the endless sacrifices, soma drinking, magical austerities, and puerile follies of Vedic and Brahmanic gods, the deities of a people fallen early into its sacerdotage and priestly second childhood, thus race declares itself in the ultimate literary form and character of mythology while the common savage basis and stuff of myths may be clearly discerned in the horned, and cannibal, and shape-shifting, and adulterous gods of Greece, of India, of the North, they all show their common savage origin, when the poet neglects Freya's command and tells of what the gods did in the morning of time, as to borrowing, we have already shown that in prehistoric times there must have been much transmission of myth, the migrations of peoples, the traffic in slaves, the law of exogamy, which always keeps bringing alien women into the families all these things favored the migration of myth. But the process lies behind history, we can only guess at it. We can seldom trace a popular legend on its travels. In the case of the cultivated ancient peoples, we know that they themselves believe they had borrowed their religions from each other. When the Greeks first found the Egyptians practicing mysteries like their own, they leaped to the conclusion that their own rites had been imported from Egypt. We who know that both Greek and Egyptian rites had many points in common with those of Mandans, Zunis, Bushmen, Australians people quite unconnected with Egypt feel less confident about the hypothesis of borrowing. We may, indeed, regard Adonis, and Zeusbagius, and Melisertes, as importations from Phoenicia, in later times, too, the Greeks, and still more the Romans, extended a free hospitality to alien gods and legends, to Serapis. Isis, the wilder Dionysiac revels, and so forth, but this habit of borrowing was regarded with disfavor by pious conservatives, and was probably, in the width of its hospitality at least, an innovation, as Tiley remarks, we cannot derive Dionysus from the Assyrian Dionysi, judge of men, a name of the solar god Samas, without ascertaining that the wine god exercised judicial functions, and was a god of the sun, these derivations, shocking to common sense, are to be distrusted as part of the intoxication of new learning. Some Assyrian scholars actually derive Hades from Bidi or Bithadigo, and luckily, says Tiley, there is no such word in the Assyrian text. On the whole topic Tiley's essay deserves to be consulted, granting, then, that elements in the wordership of Dionysus, Aphrodite, and other gods, may have been imported with the strange agite to Assyrian vases and jewels of the Sidonians. We still find the same basis of rude savage ideas. We may push back a god from Greece to Phoenicia, from Phoenicia to Acadia, but, at the end of the end, 
we reach a legend full of myths like those which Bushmen tell by the campfire, Eskimo in their dark huts, and Australians in the shade of the Gunya myths cruel, puerile, obscene, like the fancies of the savage myth-makers from which they sprang, the bull roar, a study of the mysteries, as the belated traveler makes his way through the monotonous plains of Australia, through the bush, with its level expanses and clumps of grey blue gum trees, he occasionally hears a singular sound, beginning low, with a kind of sharp tone thrilling through a whirring noise, it grows louder and louder, till it becomes a sort of fluttering windy roar, if the traveller be a newcomer, he is probably puzzled to the last degree, if he be an Englishman, country bred, he says to himself, why, that is the bull roar, if he knows the colony and the ways of the natives, he knows that the blacks are celebrating their tribal mysteries, the roaring noise is made to warn all women to keep out of the way, just as Pentheus was killed with the approval of Theocritus because he profaned the rites of the women worshippers of Dionysus, so, among the Australian blacks, men must, at their peril, keep out of the way of female, and women out of the way of male, celebrations, the instrument which produces the sounds that warn women to remain afar is a toy familiar to English country lads, they call it the bull roar, the common bull roar is an inexpensive toy which anyone can make, I do not, however, recommend it to families, for two reasons, in the first place, it produces a most horrible and inexampled din, which endears it to the very young, but renders it detested by persons of mature age, in the second place, the character of the toy is such that it will almost infallibly break all that is fragile in the house where it is used, and will probably put out the eyes of some of the inhabitants, having thus, I trust, said enough to prevent all good boys from inflicting bull roars on their parents, pastors, and masters, I proceed in the interests of science to show how the toy is made, nothing can be less elaborate, you take a piece of the commonest wooden board, say the lid of a packing case, about a sixth of an inch in thickness, and about eight inches long and three broad, and you sharpen the ends, when finished, the toy may be about the shape of a large day leaf, or a fish used as a counter that is how the New Zealanders make it, or the sides may be left plain in the center, and only sharpened towards the extremities, as in an Australian example lent me by Mr. Tyler, then tie a strong piece of string, about thirty inches long, to one end of the piece of wood and the bull roar the Australian natives call it Tarndun, and the Greeks called it Greek is complete. Now twist the end of the string tightly about your finger, and whirl the bull roar rapidly round and round. For a few moments nothing will happen. In a very interesting lecture delivered at the Royal Institution, Mr. Tyler once exhibited a bull roar. At first it did nothing particular when it was whirled round and the audience began to fear that the experiment was like those chemical ones often exhibited at institutes in the country, which contribute at most a disagreeable odor to the education of the populace, but when the bull roar warmed to its work, it justified its name, producing what may best be described as a mighty rushing noise, as if some supernatural being fluttered and buzzed his wings with fearful roar, grown-up people, of course, are satisfied with a very brief experience of this din but boys have always known the bull roar in England as one of the most efficient modes of making the hideous and unearthly noises in which it is the privilege of youth to delight. The bull roar has, of all toys, the widest diffusion, and the most extraordinary history. To study the bull roar is to take a lesson in folklore. The instrument is found among the most widely severed peoples, savage and civilized, 
and is used in the celebration of savage and civilized mysteries. There are students who would found on this a hypothesis that the various races that use the bull roar all descend from the same stock. But the bull roar is introduced here for the very purpose of showing that similar minds, working with simple means towards similar ends, might evolve the bull roar and its mystic uses anywhere. There is no need for a hypothesis of common origin, or of borrowing, to account for this widely diffused sacred object. The bull roar has been, and island a sacred and magical instrument in many and widely separated lands. It is found, always as a sacred instrument, employed in religious mysteries, in New Mexico, in Australia, in New Zealand, in ancient Greece, and in Africa, while, as we have seen, it is a peasant boy's plaything in England. A number of questions are naturally suggested by the bull roarer. Is it a thing invented once for all, and carried abroad over the world by wandering races, or handed on from one people and tribe to another, or is the bull roarer a toy that might be accidentally hit on in any country where men can sharpen wood and twist the sinews of animals into strength? Was the thing originally a toy, and is its religious and mystical nature later, or was it originally one of the properties of the priest, or medicine man? which in England has dwindled to a plaything. Lastly, was this mystical instrument at first employed in the rites of a civilized people like the Greeks, and was it in some way borrowed or inherited by South Africans, Australians, and New Mexicans, or is it a mere savage invention, surviving like certain other features of the Greek mysteries from a distant stage of savagery? Our answer to all these questions is that in all probability the presence of the Greek, or Bulroar, in Greek mysteries was a survival from the time when Greeks were in the social condition of Australians. In the first place, the bull roar is associated with mysteries and initiations. Now mysteries and initiations are things that tend to dwindle and to lose their characteristic features as civilization advances. The rites of baptism and confirmation are not secret and hidden, they are common to both sexes. They are publicly performed, and religion and morality of the purest sort blend in these ceremonies. There are no other initiations or mysteries that civilized modern man is expected necessarily to pass through. On the other hand, looking widely at human history, we find mystic rites and initiations numerous, stringent, severe, and magical in character. In proportion to the lack of civilization in those who practice them, the less the civilization, the more mysterious and the more cruel are the rites. The more cruel the rites, the less is the civilization. The red-hot poker with which Mr. Bouncer terrified Mr. Verdant Green at the sham Masonic rites would have been quite in place. A natural instrument of probationary torture. In the Freemasonry of Australians, Mandans, or Hottentots. In the mysteries of Demeter or Bacchus. In the mysteries of a civilized people. The red-hot poker, or any other instrument of torture, would have been out of place. But in the Greek mysteries, just as in those of South Africans, Red Indians, and Australians, the disgusting practice of bedaubing the neophyte with dirt and clay was preserved. We have nothing quite like that in modern initiations, except at Sparta. Greeks dropped the tortures inflicted on boys and girls in the initiations superintended by the cruel Artemis, but Greek mysteries retained the daubing with mud and the use of the bull roar. On the whole, then, and on a general view of the subject, we prefer to think that the bull roar in Greece was a survival from savage mysteries. Not that the bull roar in New Mexico, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa is a relic of civilization. Let us next observe a remarkable peculiarity of the Tarndine, or Australian bull roar. The bull roar in England is a toy, 
In Australia, according to Howard and Fison, the bull roarer is regarded with religious awe. When, on lately meeting with two of the surviving Kernay, I spoke to them of the Tarndun, they first looked cautiously round them to see that no one else was looking, and then answered me in undertones. The chief peculiarity in connection with the Tarndun is that women may never look upon it. The Shepara tribe, who call it Primoon, have a custom that, if seen by a woman, or shown by a man to a woman, the punishment to both is death. Among the Kurnay, the sacred mystery of the Tarndun is preserved by a legend, which gives a supernatural sanction to secrecy. When boys go through the mystic ceremony of initiation they are shown Tarnduns, or bull roars, and made to listen to their hideous din. They are then told that, if ever a woman is allowed to see a Tarndun, the earth will open, and water will cover the globe. The old men point spears at the boy's eyes, saying, if you tell this to any woman you will die. You will see the ground broken up and like the sea, if you tell this to any woman, or to any child, you will be killed, as in Athens, in Syria, and among the Mandans. The deluge tradition of Australia is connected with the mysteries. In Gippsland there is a tradition of the deluge. Some children of the Kernay in playing about found a Tarndun, which they took home to the camp and showed the women. Immediately the earth crumbled away, and it was all water, and the Kernay were drowned. In consequence of all this mummery the Australian women attach great sacredness to the very name of the Tarndun. They are much less instructed in their own theology than the men of the tribe. One woman believed she had heard Punjil, the chief supernatural being, descend in a mighty rushing noise, that island in the sound of the Tarndun, when boys were being made men, or initiated. On Tarnduns the Australian sorcerers can fly up to heaven. Tarnduns carved with imitations of water flowers are used by medicine men in rain making. New Zealand also has herbal roars, some of them, carved in relief, are in the Christie Museum, and one is engraved here. I have no direct evidence as to the use of these Maori bullroars in the Maori mysteries. Their employment, however, may perhaps be provisionally inferred. One can readily believe that the New Zealand bullroar may be whirled by any man who is repeating a karakia, or charm to raise the wind, loud wind, lasting wind, violent whistling wind, dig up the calm reposing sky. Come, come. In New Zealand 36A the natives regarded the wind as an indication of the presence of their god, a superstition not peculiar to Maori religion. The cold wine felt blowing over the hands at spiritualistic seances is also regarded by psychical researchers as an indication of the presence of supernatural beings. The windy roaring noise made by the bull roar might readily be considered by savages, either as an invitation to a god who should present himself in storm, or as a proof of his being at hand. We have seen that this view was actually taken by an Australian woman. The hymn called Breath, or Haha, a hymn to the mystic wind is pronounced by Maori priests at the moment of the initiation of young men in the tribal mysteries. It is a mere conjecture, and possibly enough capable of disproof. But we have a suspicion that the use of the mystic of Anuziakai was a mode of raising a sacred wind analogous to that employed by wordlers of the Tarndun. 36B Surveys, the ancient commentator on Virgil, mentions, among other opinions, this that the Vanus was a sieve, and that it symbolized the purifying effect of the mysteries. But it is clear that Surveys was only guessing, and the authors of their explanations, among them that the Vanus was a crate to hold offerings. Premishes Frugum. We have studied the bull roar in Australia. We have caught a glimpse of it in England. Its existence on the American continent is proved by letters from New Mexico.
and by a passage in Mr. Frank Cushing's Adventures in Zuni, in Zuni, too, among a semi-civilized Indian tribe, or rather a tribe which has left the savage for the barbaric condition, we find the bull roarer, here, too, the instrument a slap, Mr. Gushing calls it is used as a call to the ceremonial observance of the tribal ritual, the Zunis have various orders of a more or less sacred and sacerdotal character, Mr. Cushing writes, these orders were engaged in their annual ceremonials, of which little was told or shown me, but, at the end of four days, I heard one morning a deep whirring noise, running out, I saw a procession of three priests of the bow, in plumed helmets and closely fitting cuirasses, both of thick buckskin gorgeous and solemn with sacred embroideries and war paint, begirt with bows, arrows, and war clubs, and each distinguished by his badge of degree coming down one of the narrow streets. The principal priest carried in his arms a wooden idol, ferocious in aspect, yet beautiful with its decorations of shell, turquoise, and brilliant paint. It was nearly hidden by symbolic slats and prayer sticks most elaborately plumed. He was preceded by a guardian with drawn bow and arrows, while another followed, twirling the sounding slat, which had attracted alike my attention and that of hundreds of the Indians, who hurriedly flocked to the roofs of the adjacent houses, or lined the street, bowing their heads in adoration, and scattering sacred prayer meal on the god and his attendant priests. Slowly they wound their way down the hill, across the river, and off toward the mountain of thunder. Soon an identical procession followed and took its way toward the western hills. I watched them long until they disappeared, and a few hours afterward there arose from the top of Thunder Mountain a dense column of smoke. Simultaneously with another from the more distant western mesa of Yuhana Miles or Mount of the Beloved, then they told me that for four days I must neither touch nor eat flesh or oil of any kind, and for ten days neither throw any refuse from my doors, nor permit a spark to leave my house. For this was the season of the year when the grandmother of men, fire was precious. Here then, in Zuni, we have the bull roarer again, and once more we find it employed as a summons to the mysteries. We do not learn, however, that women in Zuni are forbidden to look upon the bull roarer. Finally, the South African evidence, which is supplied by letters from a correspondent of Mr. Tyler's, proves that in South Africa, too. The bull roarer is employed to call the men to the celebration of secret functions, a minute description of the instrument, and of its magical power to raise a wind, is given in Thiel's Cather Folklore, page 209. The bull roarer has not been made a subject of particular research, very probably later investigations will find it in other parts of the modern world besides America, Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. I have myself been fortunate enough to encounter the bull roarer on the soil of ancient Greece and in connection with the Dionysiac mysteries, Clemens of Alexandria, and Arnobius, an early Christian father who follows Clemens, describes certain toys of the child Dionysus which were used in the mysteries, among these are turbines, Greek, and Greek, the ordinary dictionaries interpret all these as whipping tops, adding that Greek is sometimes a magic wheel, the ancient scholiaston Clemens, However, writes, the Greek is a little piece of wood, to which a string is fastened, and in the mysteries it is whirled round to make a roaring noise. Here, in short, we have a brief but complete description of the bull roarer of the Australian Tarndun. No single point is omitted. The Greek, like the Tarndun, is a small object of wood. It is tied to a string. When whirled round it produces a roaring noise, and it is used at initiations. This is not the end of the matter. 
in the part of the Dionysiac mysteries at which the toys of the child Dionysus were exhibited, and during which as it seems the Greek, or Bulroar, was word, the performers dog themselves all over with clay. This we learn from a passage in which Demosthenes describes the youth of his hated adversary, the Hashines, the mother of the Hashines, he says, was a kind of wise woman, and dabbler in mysteries. The Hashines used to aid her by bedaubing the initiate over with clay and bran. 48 The word Greek, here used by Demosthenes, is explained by Harpocration as the ritual term for dobing the initiated. A story was told, as usual, to explain this rite. It was said that, when the Titans attacked Dionysus and tore him to pieces, they painted themselves first with clay, or gypsum, that they might not be recognized. Non news shows, in several places, that down to his time the celebrants of the Buttic mysteries retained this dirty truth. Precisely the same truth prevails in the mysteries of savage peoples. Mr. Winwood Reed 40B reports the evidence of Mungalamba, when initiated. Mungalamba was severely flogged in the fetish house as young Spartans were flogged before the animated image of Artemis, and then he was plastered over with goat dung. Among the natives of Victoria, 40 say the body of the initiated is bedaubed with clay, mud, charcoal powder, and filth of every kind. The girls are plastered with charcoal powder and white clay. Answering to the Greek gypsum, similar dobings were performed at the mysteries by the Mandans, as described by Catlin and the Zunis made raids on Mr. Cushing's black paint and Chinese ink for like purposes. On the Congo, Mr. Johnson found precisely the same ritual in the initiations. Here, then, not to multiply examples, we discover two singular features in common between Greek and savage mysteries. Both Greeks and savages employ the bulroar. Both bedog the initiated with dirt or with white paint or chalk. As to the meaning of the latter very un-Aryan practice, one has no idea. It is only certain that war parties of Australian blacks bedog themselves with white clay to alarm their enemies in night attacks. The Phocians, according to Herodotus VII, 27, adopted the same AC stratagem, as Captain Costigan has it. Kelly's, the medicine man Greek, chalked some 60 Phocians, whom he sent to make a night attack on the Thessalians. The sentinels of the latter were seized with supernatural horror, and fled, and after the sentinels went the army. In the same way, in a night attack among the Australian Kernay, 41A they all rapidly painted themselves with pipe clay, red ochre is no use, it cannot frighten an enemy. If, then, Greeks in the historic period kept up Australian tactics, it is probable that the ancient mysteries of Greece might retain the habit of dobing the initiated which occurs in savage rites. Come now, as Herodotus would say, I will show once more that the mysteries of the Greeks resemble those of Bushmen. In Lucian's treatise on dancing, 41b we read, I pass over the fact that you cannot find a single, 